0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. Get the joy of being uh, one of the pastors here at Midtown Church. So glad that you are here with us this morning, Uh, especially because we're uh, continuing the series that we started just last Sunday out of the book of Malachi. And uh, for some of y'all, that's perhaps an unfamiliar book of the Bible. It's the uh, last book in the Old Testament. It's it's uh, you know not too many people usually you know kind of do their devotion times in the book of Malachi, and yet maybe the Bible I think it 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 is a extremely relevant uh, book in, in the Bible. I think it's really, in fact, in, I think what we'll see today is that it's also a pretty uh, convicting book <laughs> in the Bible. And so uh, the message, I sh- shared this last week, but the, the kind of summary of the uh, whole message of the book can be summed up with the uh, intro video song that was just playing by the Beatles. That Because uh, really what God is doing is that he's uh, sent his messenger Ma- Malachi to the nation of Israel with this important a- important message which is I love you and I will always be true and so will you please love me do. That's the song, right? And the idea of love me do is this idea that loving God is is, is active. It's it's a love is a verb. <laughs> like it's something that you do. It's not in God's saying don't don't just don't just say you belong to me. And don't and don't just say you feel love to me, but will you, will you act on it? See, I, and don't do it because you're trying to get me to love you. But do it knowing that I love you. And I will always be true. So will you then love me? Will you worship me? And uh, as we're looking at this, this book, because as a church, one of the things that we are committed to as, uh, together as a church family is to help each other grow as worshipers of God. And where we as a church family are helping each other love the Lord and our God with all our heart and all our mind, and all our soul, all our strength, and that we would put that love into practice because Jesus in John chapter 14 repeatedly says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so it's this call, hey, love me do, right? It's like, let's put it into practice, our love for God. So let's help each other as a church grow as worshipers of God, people who truly love God. Not just in what we say, but in how we live. But let me ask you a question. You ever get tired of obeying God? Does, does worship in a church worship service are wearisome for you? Are you allowed to answer yes to that in a church worship service? <laughs> Some of y'all are not along. Way to go. You're, you're brave. Uh, let me tell you, I'm with you. The loving God sacrificially at times, I mean, that just feels like the last thing I want to do. Can you relate to that? Man, why is that? I wish that that wasn't true of me, but it it is. I'll I'll confess like it's sadly true of me. Obeying God oftentimes feels burdensome. Worshiping God feels like, man, it's not what I want to do. Well, that's where the nation of Israel was when God sent the messenger Malachi to them. And he had uh, some strong words to say to them, to both call them out for their attitude, but also to point them to what will help them break out of it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can go to, or if you got your phone, you can go to Malachi chapter one. We're going to pick up in verse six. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter this morning. And uh, what we're going to see is that... uh, in this, in this chapter, what's going on is that God, like I said, God sends Malachi uh, to the nation of Israel. They're, they're tired of worshiping God. And just remember, I t- touched on this really quickly last week, but like the historical context of the book is this, that uh, the nation of Israel had, uh, had been in captivity in Babylon and then um, uh, Babylonian captivity and then in Persian captivity. But then they were released and it was, a, it was a, like a, a prophecy that they would be released 70 years after going in captivity. And sure enough, the prophecy came true. And, and they got to go home and all of a sudden, Israel now is feeling so excited. Because they're going back to Jerusalem, and they feel like Man, God has said this would happen, and now it's happened. Perhaps all the other things that God said would happen will start happening, and that there would be this new Jerusalem, and there would be this new kingdom, and and Israel would truly be free, and would be like the place, and like the Messiah would come and come to rule from Jerusalem. And so they've got their hopes up, like this is all about to take place. And then they get to Jerusalem, and there's some again initial excitement. So they start rebuilding the temple, they start rebuilding the city walls, but. Then not much time passes and their hearts start to grow cold towards God. Because the things they were hoping would start happening, like right after one another, dominoes start falling. It doesn't start happening. And the city is not what it used to be. They're still under Persian rule. They're not free. And things are just like, they're not happening on their timetable. And all of a sudden, they become really disenfranchised with God. And their worship for God begins with God. And no one is honoring him. And it's into that that God says these words. Let's pick up in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. God says, The son honors his father, and the slave his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Now, let me pause there and just point out that what God starts saying right here is he just says, hey, Israel, you need to stop and you need to realize what you're doing. He says, hey, hey, listen in Israel, you got to realize what you're doing. Here's what you're doing. You are not honoring me. You are not giving me Respect. And then he specifically calls out the priest. You see that? So the priests, those who are supposed to lead the people to worship me, you are the ones who are absolutely treating me with contempt. And that word contempt is a pretty significant word. Because the, the word contempt it means this. It's, a, it's an attitude of ongoing disrespect that comes from seeing something as worthless and insignificant. So God is saying, you priests, you're treating my name, or put it a different way, you're treating me as if I am insignificant, as if I am worthless. Now, did you notice here how the priests respond? Do they argue? No, we're not. No, what do they do? They plead ignorance, right? How are we doing that? How are we treating you with contempt? And uh, just a quick thing to point out, ignorance, friends, not a good excuse for treating God with contempt. Like, to be able to say, well, I, you know, I just didn't re- realize I was doing that, that's, that's, not, a, uh, that's not a good excuse. It, but um, we often don't, we're not aware of our own actions or our own attitudes. And just to say, like, it's one of the reasons why spending time in the Word on our own is so important. We would get, a, get away with God, open up the word, and let him speak into us so that he could point out the things that we personally are blind to. And that's what God does here. They say, well, we don't know how we're doing, how are we doing that. So God speaks in, and he tells them how they're treating him with contempt. Now, I'm about to read what he says in verse 7, but before I do, I just want to point out something that's, that's been like stuck with me all week as I've studied this. It's pretty amazing what he points to. So you're treating me as if I'm insignificant. You're treating me as I'm worthless. And then he doesn't start listing off all of these like sin areas in their lives. He does do that as the book continues. We'll see that. But first thing he points to is their worship practices. So he says, you're treating me with contempt. And they say, how? And he says, in the way that contempt. Okay, wait, but they're worshiping him. How does that mean that they're treating him with contempt? But God says, no, it's actually in your worship of me that you treat me with contempt. Here's what he says, verse 7. He says, By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? And by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now, stop here again and just point out that what's happening. Is that kind of helpful to understand a little bit of the Mosaic law? But that in Israel at that time, God had given them very strict guidelines on how they were to come and present offerings to him, how they were to worship him through offerings. In fact, for example, in Exodus 12.5, Leviticus 1.3, amongst many other places, God instructs them very clearly to only sacrifice animals without defect uh, or blemish. And then in Leviticus 22, 18 through 25, I'm not going to read it, but you can look it up if you'd like. He expressly states that they are not to ever sacrifice blind, lame, or sick animals. That their worship of God was to include them bringing their very best. Not their leftovers. Not the animals that they didn't want to have breeding because they were blind or, or diseased, or the ones that were already about to die, so they were of little value to them. That's not what they were supposed to bring. So, see, For to give God what is of little or no worth to you is a direct statement of God's worth to you. And so as theologian uh, Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on Malachi states, uh, to offer lame and diseased animals was an open insult to God. But again, notice what the priest's response is, right? And They say, okay, well, you know, how have we treated, with you, with, treated your name with contempt? You know, how have we defiled you? And I, they, they plead ignorance. And I'm pointing that out for the second time here because I want you to recognize it's not as if the priests were standing up in the temple and declaring, we think God is insignificant. We think that God is worthless. They weren't saying that, and yet, God is pointing out, hey, you need to realize what you're doing, for by what you believe about, communicating that that's what you actually feel towards me, what you actually believe about me, that I am insignificant, that I am worthless, that our, our actions reveal our attitude, because I doubt that there's many of us in here or any of us in here that, that believe that Jesus is your Savior and died for you. That if you believe that, I doubt there's anyone in here that would just stand up and say, yeah, I think that God is insignificant. I think God is worthless. You, you wouldn't say that, but man, let's just take a minute and just examine. What about by our actions? What do we communicate about what's true about our attitude towards God? I think about it for a, for a minute. Like just examine your, 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 you know, your ways you can worship God. Like on Sunday morning when, when you come to gather. Is it common for us to give God just the leftovers of our schedule? And that, yeah, I'll come and gather with my church family to worship only if my weekend isn't busy or I don't have something better to do. Or do you prioritize this time to gather and worship him? Or what about in your own personal time with God, in your devotional time? Does God get your best or does he get your leftovers? Do you rarely spend time with God alone or do you, but yet you still manage to find time to hang out with your friends or be on social media or watch TV? Or what about like, how you use your talents to worship God? You know, do you, does, does God get the best of you in thinking about worshiping him and partnering with him to advance his kingdom? Or does he just get your leftovers and and yet you you know get, happily give all you have all you are to pursuing that degree or that career or that money or what about your own you know your own money do you, do you just give your leftovers to god if anything at all or do you give your from your first fruits as the bible would say from from the, you know your best so you get Scripture teaches us the three key ways we can worship God are with our time, talents, and treasures. And if you examine your life, would you say, okay, the way that I am using, stewarding those things, that points to, man, God is worth much, that he is of great worth to me, or does it, honestly, by looking at your actions, would you say, man, I treat God as if he's insignificant, as if he's, you know, worthless, God's message to the nation of Israel is this, whether you admit it, admit it, that you would stand up and say it or not, you need to examine your actions, realize what you're doing in me as if you're treating me with contempt, you're treating me as insignificant, you're treating me as if I am worthless by your actions. Okay. But he he goes uh, even further than that, and God says to them, not only are you saying this by your actions, but you need to also recognize or realize that not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. And he starts pushing on a couple of key attitudes that were driving uh, their actions. And So let me pick back up verse 9. Here's what he says. now plead with uh, now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will He accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I and I will accept no offering from your hands. Now. This is some strong language. But what God is doing here is he's, he starts pushing on a couple of just like this key attitude that's driving a lot of how they're relating to God, their lack of worship for God. And the first thing that he points to is he says, okay, you, when you come to serve me, you're actually coming to serve me as a way to serve yourself. That, that driving your worship of me is actually this idea of, of, of selfish service. Now, here's where I get that. In verse 9, when it says, um, now plead with God to be gracious to us, the, uh, uh, in uh, his commentary, Robert Gallaty's commentary Malachi, he, he says that that term plead is uh, a woodenly translated means to smooth over. And in our vernacular uh, today, it could be translated to butter someone up. And so here God is pointing out that not only are they bringing him worthless offerings, but the reason they're bringing any offering at all is just to try to get him to do something for them, to bless them, to to be gracious to them. And so they're offering what they do just to get God to do what they want God to do. And so their offerings are not actually for God, but they're actually a way to serve themselves. And God says, man, I would rather you just shut the temple doors so that no one can bring any offerings at all than for you to bring me your selfish, worthless sacrifices. Now, before we judge Israel too strongly, let, let's think and again evaluate. Like, do we ever do this? Like when you ever have you ever thought, man, God, you know, I know I know I haven't been spending time with you and your word. But, you know, I'll start doing that if you'll just come through for me in this situation. If I could just just get this A on this test, or if I could just get this good doctor's report, then, then I'll spend time with you. Or have you ever thought, man, God, I know I haven't been giving financially towards advancing your kingdom, but God, I will. I'll start doing that if you could just give me a raise. You give me the raise, I'll start doing that. And when you start making this quid pro quo with God, like, yeah, I'll worship you if you come through for me. And your worship for God is not really worship of God at all. It's just selfish service. You don't treat God as an end in himself, but as a means to an end. God again says, I would just rather you shut the doors. I don't want you to even have a sense that you are worshiping me. By bringing these offerings because you're not worshiping me. And I want you to have false confidence. I want you to recognize the attitude that's driving your actions is not worshipful. It's worthless sacrifice. It's selfish service. I think uh, that's a fair response from God. Uh, Krista, my wife, the best thing I can do for her to show her love out of all the things in the world is just to write her sweet notes. And she just loves it when I write her sweet notes, especially if I hide them and she finds them. I just, like, I've hung the moon when I do that. And so, but if I were to, I haven't done this, but if I were to write her note every single day for a week, let her find them each day, and then at the end of that week, she's talking about how great I am and all the stuff I've done for her. Then I say, well, hey, you know, I was just, you know, completely unrelated, but I was just wondering, um, now that you feel so good about me, would it be cool if I go have a guy's weekend next weekend? She would look at me like, you know, you mean the, all these notes, all these sweet things you've been doing for me, has really just been a way to butter me up to get me to do something nice for you? And, and, and the notes would lose their meaning to her, Right? Because I wasn't writing her notes for her. I was writing her notes for me. And she would have man, I would rather you had not write me notes at all. God says, I'd rather you not bring offering to me at all. Because you know he says this and you're bringing them for you. He goes on and he says this and starting in verse 11. my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured lame or diseased animals, and you offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. My name is to be feared among the nations. Here, what I want to point out to the attitude that God calls him out for, is this. He says, you are not only serving me selfishly, but you are worshiping me wearily. You like that alliteration? You're worshiping me wearily. For the priests have begun to see the worship of God as a burden and as a waste of time. Now, let's think about this. What would cause them to think that God's worshiping God is a waste of time? Well, it's because they were worshiping God as a way to serve themselves, and it wasn't working. Remember the history? Like things were not going well in Israel. The city was not in, 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 in as good in a place as it was prior to the Babylons coming, Babylonians coming and conquering them. The place didn't look the same. Uh, and then on top of that, like the rest of these prophecies weren't coming. About on their timetable. And so they're just thinking, man, like, God, we're worshiping you, but you're not doing anything for us. And so now this is a waste of time. And now keeping up these rituals of offering these sacrifices day after day, man, it just feels like a burden. And I sniff at it. <laughs> I snort at it. It's like, psh, what, a, what a waste. Because, again, they're not serving God for God. They're not worshiping God for God. Here, here's the principle: See, when we make the worship of God all about us, our worship becomes worthless to God and wearisome for us. See, when we make the worship of God all about us, it's worthless to God and it's wearisome for us. Have it. When our worship for God is, is really like, man, what can I get out of it? Okay, it, is it not common to come in on a Sunday morning and feel like, man, yeah, I'll, I'll make time to worship with my church family, but it, I better get something out of this thing, <laughs> right? I better, I better feel like it was helpful or else, yeah, I'm not going to keep doing it. Or to open up our Bible and say, okay, yeah, God, I'm going a, I'm to a hear from your word. But you know what? Unless I hear something really encouraging or I learn something new or I get something really insightful out of this, then I'm not going to continue to do this. Or in our time in prayer. So yeah, God, I'll pray. I'll pray, but, you know, you better answer my prayers and you better answer them on my timetable or else, you know, I'm just not going to be as committed to praying. And say, so we, we come and we, we worship. In a sense, we're doing the worshipful things, activities, but we're not worshiping God. And again, it's for us. And ultimately, if that's your attitude, then in those practices, it'll eventually become wearisome to do. I'm going to quit reading my Bible. I'm going to quit gathering with the church on Sundays. I'm going to quit praying because, you know, I'm not getting everything out of it that I wanted to get out of it. You're doing it for you. Man, that is so convicting to me. It's so I find it. It's so easy to fall into that kind of thinking. Personally, I I just do that. God says, "Hey, that's that's worthless worship, and it's wearisome worship." So, what do we do? Like, we all perhaps if you're like me, I've been feeling kind of beat up all week (laughs) long studying this passage. Perhaps you feel convicted and like, man, yeah, I fall into that. That's where I am right now. Perhaps you're not, and if you're not, then that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's really great. But if, if this is where you are, then like, man, what do we do with this? How, how do we respond when worship gets wearisome and when we make it about us, when obeying God is not something that we're excited about doing, we're not excited about loving, loving Him? Well, the answer the, the, the is found right here in this passage. See, the, 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 the main thing that will cause us to want to worship God for God is when we remember who God is. Hey, you, you notice how it, the passage began in verse six? Let me go back to it. It starts with this A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. See, what's God begin with here? He begins by calling them to realize who he is. Why worship me? Why give me honor? Why give me respect, God says? Because I am your father and I am your master. See, God's saying you worthless and weary worship is a result of forgetting who I am. And friends, I don't, I don't know about y'all, but speaking personally, like that really resonates with me. It's when I forget who God is and I take my eyes off of him and I turn them to me that worshiping and loving and obeying God becomes a burning and I'm not excited to give God my best unless I think perhaps by doing so it will get him to gra- be gracious to me, to give me something in return. How often do you just take time to, to meditate, uh, to reflect on who God is? To remember his innate value, his innate worth. You see, you get our word worship from an old English word meaning worth-ship. And, uh, and so worship is the activity of ascribing someone or something. And in this case, God, honor and Respect. It means to proclaim their worth. But we will not be quick to worship God when we forget God's worth because we forget who he is. And so here God begins with a statement about who he is. I'm your father worthy of honor and I'm your master or your king worthy of your respect and reverence. Because I think that it's significant that he calls them to recognize that he is both of those things. You see, a father is an authority figure that has an intimate relationship with us. But a king is also an authority figure, but who rules over us. And what I find is that sometimes we will forget that God is is both of those things. But more often, we fail to live in light of the fact that he is both of those And I think that most people, if you just went down the rows here and asked, we could all identify which way we more commonly relate to God. We gravitate to one or the other. For me personally, I I gravitate to God as, as loving father, as a good father. It's probably due to my relationship with my dad. A great relationship with my dad is, is you know, very, very close. And so, you know, a lot of love from him. I hear that God's father. I hear about the gospel and what God has done to, to send his son to die in my place, that I would be uh, reconciled to him. And I hear that and I think, hallelujah, amen, that's amazing. God loves me. And that resonates with me. I certainly have more to grow in my understanding of God's love. But, like, the idea that he loves me, like, I get it. I think, yeah, that's awesome. But for some of y'all in here, that's not how it hits you. And you wrestle regularly with the idea that God loves you. It's just so hard for that to actually come home to your heart. For me, what I find hard grasping is that God is my king. See, when I gravitate towards God simply as my father, as amazing as that is, what I can do, I'm prone to do, is, is to lose my reverence for God. And I, I can feel this sense of, yeah, well, like, you know, God loves me. And so I, I, I just assume that. And then when it comes to, uh, when it comes to um, obeying him, I, I take his commands a little bit more as a suggestion, knowing that if I, if I do it or if I don't do it, God's still going to love me anyways. And so, and like, that's just, man, that's just it's a dangerous way to live. I need to remember, God is both my father and my king. Who loves me and yet has all authority over me to tell me what to do. Who loves me so much that when he tells me what to do, it's always what's best for me. But yet, if I don't do it, then I am disobeying the the king. I think it's interesting, seven times, seven times in this passage... God is referred to to as the Lord Almighty, and the term Lord Almighty literally is is the title the Lord of Hosts. That would be the real strict translation of that, and the Lord of Hosts is an interesting title for God because it it actually carries with it a military term. It's like a military term. Talking about God as supreme commander or supreme leader. Oftentimes it's attached to the idea that he is the, uh, he is the commander of the angelic armies. So the Lord of the angel armies. But it not only carries uh, with it that sense. But also um, that he is the Lord of everything. See In Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 it says this. Um, and after God has completed creation. It says "Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts. And hosts there is used to speak of the entire universe. And so when God is called the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, it also means that he's the master or supreme commander of all of creation. The one who created everything and rules over everything. Now, just take a minute and think about this. Like, do you recognize that that's who God is? Do you remember who we're called to worship, who he is. He's your loving father, but also the creator of all. He loves you intimately, knowing every hair on your head, forming you in your mother's womb as we sling about as the morning began, and yet at the same time, speaking every star into existence. How often do you reflect on who God is? He's your Father and your Master. Spent time this week just looking at all these pictures of the universe and just reflecting on how big God is. And that He is the Lord of hosts, the one who calls all of the stars in existence. I've got pictures up here. I don't have time to show them to you. And so we're not going to do that. But um, I'd encourage you this week to take some time just to do that. Just Google it. Just Google Hey. Where are we in the Milky Way? Uh, how many stars are there in the known universe? Uh, it turns out a septillion. Found that out this week. Uh, that's a one with 24 zeros behind it. It's a big number. And you can tuck that away for your, whenever you're on Jeopardy. But that's, that's it. But Isaiah 40, 26 says this. Lift your eyes on high. And see who's created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, and he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing, not one out of the septillion that there are in the known universe. Guys, this is, I have to remember this. And friends, my guess is that you do too. And when your worship for God becomes wearisome, Or you are tempted to worship God only as a way to get him to serve you. Or you are not moved to offer him your best, but you're just offering him your leftovers. The the answer is, hey, you've forgotten who it is that you are called to worship. You've forgotten who God is. He's your father and your master. So then the question becomes, what what do we do with that? How do we remember? What what should I do? And, And guys, let me tell you, the application is not for you just to try harder. What we need to do, friends, is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the true and greater Israel. The book of Galatians makes that very clear, that in to recognize Israel failed in, Jesus did not fail in. So when Israel failed to, to recognize and relate to God according to his worth as his master and father, Jesus did not. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life, you begin to recognize that he truly related to God as both father and master at the same time. That he called him father over and over and over again, yet he also recognized God as the king, And he submitted himself to God saying, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, 101 times in the book of John, Jesus calls God Father. And out of those 101 times, over 80 of them are directly connected to God's will. So at the same time, he sees him as the intimate father, but also as the master that should be followed. So much so that Jesus follows despite his own desire, even to the point of death, even death on a cross the scripture says. Because that's how we should relate to God, but we don't. But Jesus comes and he relates rightly to God on our behalf for us, and then he dies in our place. I brushed by it earlier, but verse 11 in this chapter says this, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And many biblical scholars have remarked about this phrase, pure offerings, saying pure offerings will be brought from all the nations to God. And they say that word is significant because it doesn't just mean unblemished, That like God was saying you're supposed to bring Israel, it actually is a a finer quality than that. It actually means not just unblemished, but morally pure. Which begs the question, how will the nations bring morally pure offerings to God? The only answer is if God would first bring the sacrifice that would make us morally pure. See, Jesus related to God the way we were supposed to relate to God, but we failed to, and so he himself became the offering, the perfect, uh, unblemished, pure offering. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist would say, that would take away the sins of the earth. And then he laid down his life, and then he rose again. So that, and when we, by faith in him, we believe that he's our savior. We look to him for our forgiveness and to reconcile us to God. The Bible says that we actually become holy and blameless in God's sight. Pure offering of Jesus man, Christ. And Jesus' pure offering, the pure offering of Jesus makes us, washes us white as so snow, makes us pure. Holy and blameless so that we and anyone else who believes him all over the nations from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun who believe in Christ can come to God and bring them pure offerings because Jesus was the first pure offering given to us that would make us pure. So that we can do as Romans 12:1 says that in view of God's mercy we would offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God for this is true and proper worship. So how, friends? How do we remember God's worth? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And how do we learn to relate to God as father and master? We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we learn from him and how he did that. And what will move us to not just, to not bring worthless, selfish sacrifices to God, we fix our eyes on Jesus. For it's God's mercy displayed in Jesus. Again, in view of God's mercy, as Romans 12, 1 says, that's what will move us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices and truly worship him. So friends, sorry, my mic's busted. Um oh. We're going to end by uh, taking communion and doing that, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, We're going to, uh, uh, when we take communion, we take the bread and uh, that represents His body broken for us, and and the wine, or the, for us juice that represents God's blood poured out for us. And as we do that, ask that you ask God to drive it home for you. That Jesus was a perfect sacrifice that was given so that we can enter into a relation with, a, with our Father and Master, our King. And may what Jesus did for and to of God's great worth, that we would be moved to worship Him and to love Him well, in light of who He is. We pray, and you can come up and take offering. The, I mean, take the the communion in the front or on the back tables. Man, it's getting worse and the back tables um so let me pray and then.